I haven't read that article yet, but I've heard good things. The one about how labor law is just created to limit strikes, right? Yeah. I mean, I love that hook. It ended up being long, but I love that hook because that's the lore about the Labor Relations Act is that it gave workers the right to strike. And it had exactly the opposite intention and effect. Like the proof is in the pudding. There are no strikes anymore. I mean, it's 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 in the preamble. It's legibly in the preamble. And like you can measure the effect. It's interesting, though, in that what I find the irony today is that a lot of unions have more powers to strike and more ability to strike without a contract um, than they do with the contract. And I know that's the whole history of labor unions basically conceding their rights to strike at the bargaining table. But that's the weird thing. I find myself, I get a lot of workers at really small shops that like ask me advice on how to organize. I don't know if this happens to you a lot too. And a lot of times I tell them like, don't go for recognition or collective bargaining. You're such a small shop. The employer will just shut you down. And it's like so easy for them to weasel their way out of this shit. Like, and like you have more powers under the Wagner Act to like disrupt production than you do often when you go the path of legal recognition. It's absolutely true. And and, and yeah, and also like what's effective and what is your boss afraid of? I mean, I've even talked to people in the WGA who will admit that like one all out strike every 30 years or 10 years or whatever, like companies know how to prepare for that. They they stockpile material, like does it grind production to a halt? Yes, in a sense. But like, I remember hearing the same thing with the last GM strike. Like the once in a while all out strike, it alleviates the company's payroll problems or whatever, um, and allows them to like draw down inventory. And, you know, it's a very, very difficult weapon for workers to deploy too. And contrast that with like, I'd like to call it the call is coming from inside the house. I mean, just having your hands on the levers of production and using that as leverage and employers, I mean, that is far more terrifying to them. If you're willing to down tools on a repeated basis, whenever you're unhappy with something and like, yeah, there are actually ironically more protections for that under law than, than once you have a contract, not that the legal protections are what matters, but. Talking about strikes, uh, I think is a good segue into this kind of kitchen table conversation that I wanted to have with you on just how to revive the power of the labor movement. Very broad, meaty topic at hand. I've been getting more and more immersed in like very niche labor arguments. feel like I talk a language that nobody else really can penetrate or understand. And it seems like uh, it seems like what's happened over the past 30 years is kind of a very circular argument with three main archetypes for how to revive organized labor. Like the three broad debates, I think, are one camp says you need to organize the unorganized. The way to revive the labor movement is by building union density. The problem with the labor movement is there's not enough workers in unions. And without that density, we don't have leverage and power to like, you know, wrest concessions from the boss. So you increase density, the labor movement suddenly has power again. Um, and at the peak of the labor movement, the high water mark was like a density of something like 33% in like 1954. So that's one argument. Another argument is all about the rank and file strategy. 
you know, the problem of the labor movement is the leadership are backwards and conservative. They have bad politics and they're just a bunch of sellouts and class collaborationists. So what you really have to do is like either oust them from power or wrest power away from them and put it back into the hands of the rank and file. And you do that through reform caucuses, you know, internal slates. And occasionally at its best, you can create some cross-union alliances of like lefties and militants that are willing to put the power in the hands of the rank and file in the labor movement. And then I think the third broad argument, and they all, sometimes they overlap, I think, but I think they kind of do separate into distinct lanes mostly, is revive industrial unionism. You know, the labor movement was at its peak when there was actually different types of unions. Uh, today, our problem is like, I've heard you call it monocrop unionism. Basically, all unions fit neatly into existing labor law, imitate each other, just do collective bargaining. It's like the same kind of formula. Nobody's really trying to do anything different or outside the confines of labor law. And also because of labor law, people have basically abandoned industrial unionism. Like labor law makes that practically an impossibility if you're trying to color within the lines. Uh, and without this kind of organizing an insurgent wave of workers from outside the halls of labor, the existing halls of labor, there's not really any competition for existing labor unions to fight or change their practices. So the best thing we can do is organize new unions, a la like contemporary IWWs or something like that. Okay, so that's a whole lot of, of ideas thrown out there. I wonder what you think about, about these debates um, and any familiarity that you have with each of them or opinions you have on each of them. I'd be curious to hear. Yeah, I mean, that is a mouthful, but at the same time, there's a whole lot of not that much there <laughs> in the <laughs> sense that like, I mean, I think that you're absolutely right that the spectrum of disagreement and difference of opinion is really narrow. And every time a debate arises in the labor movement, I'm extraordinarily disappointed because I don't find it to be doing anything particularly interesting. Like organizing the unorganized, you know, on the one hand, I apologize. I don't know if you can hear the ice cream truck going by in the background. On the one hand, yeah, got to organize it. Yeah, they they know louder. that like my <laughs> they know that my kids live here and they drive by like once every half an hour. But like organizing and organized, my understanding of this historically was like yeah, when use, unions saw plummeting density starting in like the eighties or something, they decided to do something about it, and the AFL CIO took on this idea. I don't know the whole history of the labor movement. I don't know very much at all. But this became a priority in the sense of it was a budgetary priority. So like, let's pay for organizers. And it was often young people and they were put through boot camp and they were leftists and idealists and they were pushed out into workplaces to try to organize the unorganized. And, you know, this idea is tempting. And the experiment, as we know, didn't go that well, right? Union density just continued to fall. I think you could maybe look in more detail about what some of the dynamics were that made that unsuccessful. But at the end of the day, it wasn't the solution. And the reason why this continues to sound like a good idea is because there's an obviousness to if nobody's a union member, unions don't have any power. Um, therefore, we need people to be union members. But then, like, in some sense, it's like, OK, but what is the leverage? Like, where does the leverage come from? Because there was a high water mark in 1954, let's say it's 35%. You've looked up the numbers. I haven't. Then why did it go down? 
right? Like what, what is the source of the problem? And I don't know, I, I see this play out where, where people will talk about how many hundreds of thousands or millions of members a union has, and that may be true, but like, okay, but to do what? Like they have to be using the leverage that they have, which as you and I know, is the fact that they can halt production and that they can control, you know, the, the flow of work. But instead, I feel like the organized, the unorganized thing, like, is hinting at something else. Like, then we'll have a huge voting block, question mark. Then we'll have a huge, like, uh, dues base. I mean, I don't know. I, that's the, That whole thing leaves me cold. The rank and file strategy thing, and cut off my round at any point, because I could just talk about this stuff all day. No, good. I'm glad. I mean, I did want to say quickly, I didn't look up any of the numbers. <laughs> Don't quote me on any of this stuff. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think the real question that I pose for this kind of organized, the unorganized approach is like how, if you have an additional million new union members overnight into the labor movement, does it really build any power when these unions are not actually fighting, you know, or like trying to like wrest real demands from the bosses and like you said, not only is that a question that's important to answer, but the the means by which unions decide that they have to build density is usually through one hiring like a bunch of professional professionals at a college that have never worked a stupid job in their life and are terrible organizers in the first place. Like it's a very kind of elitist mindset that like recruits the pool of like new organizers into the staff uh, fold. But the other thing is usually through like neutrality agreements. Um, like these kinds of packs with employers that guarantee that unions won't fight. So like, not only is it the question of like, does it really like increase the power of the labor movement when you don't have fighting unions? That's an important question. But often this path of how to revive labor guarantees that there will be no fight because most unions see the only way of growing through employer collaboration. Absolutely. And and that's it's funny that the lesson that was learned from how difficult it is to organize, the lesson that was learned in the 80s and 90s is, is that people then pivoted their demand to if only it were easier to organize, right? right. So like that's where all the PRO Act stuff comes from or Employee Free Choice Act. That's where all the electoral stuff comes from. And yeah, neutrality campaigns or like the idea that, well, if we ran unemployment insurance through unions, more people would be members because they'd have to sign up with the union to get employment and unemployment insurance or, you know, what have you. All of these arguments that like, well, it should just be easier for unions to have members. But if that were the case, it's like, then then what would you have? Like, let's say that you could point a magic wand at a workplace and they would instantly become your members. Then what? And for that matter, as you're kind of alluding to, if the goal is just to bring more people into the fold of the existing labor relations system uh, and profile of, of of unions and contracts today, I mean, it's not that interesting, right? Like you were saying a minute ago that when you give workers advice at this point, you're not really giving them the advice that steers them in the direction of like, here's how to get a certification and bargain a contract because we know how fucking moribund those processes are. It's like, well, get together with your worker, coworkers who are affected by the same problem and march on your boss and give them a demand. And if they don't meet your demand, stop working or do something else that's terrifying. I have to sometimes persuade them against trying to affiliate with the union employer. Now, I should say, 
I do organize workers into the union, <laughs> but when it's like these small shops and there's certain scenarios, it's like, yeah, I, I find myself often desperately trying to convince workers that it's not worth going that path, that they'd be better off just doing, I call it like direct action unionism or something like that. Just like something different, you know, never call it a union. There was this like little shop in Philadelphia that I've been having this conversation for like a month with them and they just keep coming back to, they want the recognition. They want that legal certification. Um, it, it's a hard thing to figure out to parse. Yeah, it is. And, and and I have had the same experience. People are so captured by the notion of legal recognition and they're really captured by the notion of the contract. Like it's not real unless there's that. But you and I have also operated in milieus that are, you know, like that have contracts or that are standard labor relations scenarios. And in those cases too, what those workers can achieve is entirely a function of how much pain they're capable of inflicting on the employer, whether it's day-to-day work issues like, you know, being denied time off or having a bully boss or, you know, the contract that you do have being respected or whether it's bargaining and, and coming when it comes to bargaining a new contract, like it, the success stands or falls on the ability of those workers to take action. And the more like the more economically disruptive action the better. Well, I stopped you before you're about to steamroll through the rank and file strategy. So I'm curious what you have to say about that. The rank and file strategy. So I will preface this by saying that I love labor notes and always have because they do something that nobody else really does other than on a maybe much smaller scale, which is basically illustrate for workers how you win things. And they mostly do that by telling stories of workers collectively doing something and winning. Like you use the leverage you have at work. I was at a training a couple of weeks ago and there was a labor notes example. Anytime you find like a good example of workers taking action, it came from labor notes. And it was like workers in an airplane hangar who had a new supervisor who was like I don't know, denying their lunch breaks or something. So they all just collectively left and like suddenly their lunch breaks were restored, something like that. So they know exactly like where power lies and they curate those stories and they develop them into trainings and books and other materials. And then on the other hand, they still have this core, core idea that the problem with unions is that they have the wrong leadership in charge. And I mean... I I understand where the idea is coming from because, yes, it is the case that there are union bureaucracies, bureaucrat is the favorite term, in which like the uh, leadership is discouraging of coloring outside the lines or, you know, there's a complacency in that union. The stewards are just as much controlling the behavior of workers as they are arguing their case to management. Like that is a phenomenon that exists, but I'm not convinced that the solution to it is just to put someone else in charge of it. And the most fascinating example recently, and this kind of ties in all the other stuff you're talking about, has been at ALU, Amazon Labor Union. And there's a good article in Labor Notes in their latest issue about how there's now a rank and file caucus at ALU. And the and precisely the point of contention is whether the leadership should be focusing on 
organizing the unorganized, like more warehouses, or whether they should be focused on bargaining their own contract within their warehouse. And I bring the example up only to point out that like yesterday's labor radicals are tomorrow's union bureaucrats, right? And like somehow anybody who who ends up, you know, with with the reins of union leadership falls into that position. And I published a piece on this once. I think you know something like uh, something about socialist leadership or won't save unions or like the problem with the rank and file strategy. And not by me, but by Nick. And it just is an excellent takedown of this whole concept that like, if you put somebody else in charge of our existing labor relations handcuff system or grievance process or arbitration process or contract bargaining process, that you're somehow going to get a different result. And I know that, you know, my friends in labor notes, and I really do have friends in labor notes would respond and say like, okay, but you need leadership that acknowledges the necessity of rank and file action and militancy on the shop floor, et cetera. And I think that that's true. But I could like get in, get deeper into my spiel about why I hate the notion of a militant minority. Well, that's that's actually something that I do think is very present. Like one of the things that the rank and file strategy is vulnerable to is this militant minority tendency, which I think is a big problem. Uh, I get shit on by other folks about this too when I criticize the militant minority because it's like I don't know I I don't exactly understand where where it's coming from, but I think the assumption is that people have to have socialist ideas to effectively organize workers and lead unions. I don't know that that's ever like a very explicit assumption, but it's it's buried within the militant minority thesis. I mean, William Z. Foster is explicit about it. And boy, does that guy suck. Yeah. And he's the hero, right? He's the hero. Yeah. People talk about him as if he was like a glowing labor leader. And he said that 90% of workers are stupid and backwards or per- and permanently so, and that you need the 10% of the enlightened socialists to basically lead them to the promised land. And I don't know that today's militant minority advocates necessarily think that, but it's present. That attitude, that phenomenon keeps recreating itself. They do think that. I mean, like implicitly, I, like I'll let you finish. Um, you're, I think you're probably right. I'm trying to be a little tempered in my takedown, but I don't know why. Um, people that agree with me are the ones that listen to the show. I mean, the way that I resolve this is like, I feel as though this is, a, this is a revelation I had a few weeks ago. There are two kinds of people. There are party people, not in the fun way, but people who see things in the framework of like a, a political parties. And then there are like, whatever we are, union people, power people. I don't know what the, the, the word is, but party people always think that it comes down to leadership, right? We need the right people in charge because they are going to lead us to whatever, right? The promised land. And I am not one of those people, not because of some kind of antecedent ideological conviction, but in my experience in organizing workers, I have not found it to be the case that a workplace becomes most powerfully organized when a handful of enlightened people are in charge. And instead, I find that every worker has issues. I've never met a worker who doesn't have an issue. And even though they are have been put into the mode of ignoring that issue or thinking that nothing can be done about it, if you can, if you can overturn that, if you can extend the this solidarity and this idea that like, no, if we act collectively 
and come up with a plan and use force and power, we can fix this thing. We can force the employer to fix this thing. And then of course, like once you have the experience of that, that's transformative. And so, I mean, that's how unionism works. It only works if you can get the five, if you use the one to five organizing, you know, scale, if you can get the five to take action, that's the only time it works. Now, I do like the breakdown of party people versus union people, although I am a party person, just the fun kind. <laughs> We're the good party people. Right. The the union people are the party people. Um, I, I think that's all right. And I do think this, like, the rank and file strategy, probably because it's most often practiced through like a militant minority framework, is just like a hamster wheel that keeps repeating itself. And I think the other, you brought up ALU, the other really prominent example right now is, you know, the Teamsters with their new president, Sean O'Brien, who already is getting called a sellout and all this stuff. It remains to be seen at the time of this recording, maybe that contract's going to get ratified. It probably will. Um, but I know I know the analysis that's already going to be put forth by the proponents of the rank and file strategy is that he was not sufficiently socialist enough or he wasn't the right leader. He was a step in the right direction, better than Hoffa Jr., but not the kind of socialist leadership that's really going to take the Teamsters into the into the next generation of union power. And anytime your analysis comes down to like this person didn't have the right purity of heart and mind, heart and soul or whatever, like that's absurd. I mean, that's what people who otherwise think they have a materialist analysis of economy and society end up resting their analysis on. And I find that gobsmacking. I like that word, gobsmacking. <laughs> um, to your point, too, about it's party people. I think the other thing about the rank and file strategy that it doesn't really matter that much in like criticizing it, but the first articulation of it as a strategy was by Kim Moody. And I do think most people just completely ignore his actual essays on the topic. Like, I don't think he's read because he has this whole viewpoint that basically says unions can only like raise class consciousness so much and then that's it. There's a ceiling. Um, that the political party is the vanguard that needs to basically steer the ship towards socialism. And that the best thing that unions can do is create, what do you call them? Some fucking stupid term, like interstitial organizations or something like that. I can't even remember. But he basically argued that outside of like reform slates inside unions, that the best thing the union movement could do was create like socialist blocks, like cross-union alliances of socialists that form like a proto-party that once the the material conditions are ripe enough, eventually a real political party can like gain traction and take over, you know, once these inner, these temporary blocks have done their job. Um, and nobody talks about that shit. Like that is just like not even brought up when the rank and file strategy is brought up. And it's literally his whole argument rests on unions are only good enough to build the base for an eventual socialist political party. Like, that's it. I guess it's just punctuating the point. No, it's you're absolutely right. Like people, there's nothing hidden there. It's all laid out, just like the intention of the Labor Relations Act is all laid out in its preamble, which is to, to reduce strikes and labor disruption. And yeah, his problem, as he articulated, was just as much the fact that uh, the there were no socialists in the labor movement as the fact that the socialists that do exist were not working class. They were outside of the labor movement. They were academics or, you know, whatever. And 
like that also tells you a lot. And one of the things it tells you is that the working class isn't good enough, right? Like gets back to foster. Like they're just, they're not smart enough. They're not, uh, I don't know, good enough. They're not like capable of waging their own emancipatory struggles, which is bonkers. Like, and, and bonkers, not because I'm a ideological Puritan, but because like that does not register with my experience organizing. Like I have seen, and also, oh, whatever. I mean, I wrote that whole, very salty article about like the behavior of leftists and socialists within organizing campaigns, which is like not great, like <laughs> usually even counter organizing. And again, like the most militant activity I have seen has been from ordinary people who are definitely not card carrying socialists, but who basically take their experience on the job of being exploited and and oppressed and they flip that into an experience of empowerment and crushing their boss and that's where militancy comes from you know other than that it's all just theory i remember this article the left-wing deadbeat right yeah that was it and i remember the point that i think is really a good one was that people that view themselves as a militant minority or, or lefties in the labor movement tend to view their role as like organizing other leftists, not the working class necessarily. Right. And I, I think that's exactly it. That's like right on the money. It's like they're just trying to organize other socialists um, and get them into their particular tendency of socialism rather than viewing power as something that comes from the working class. Like that the working class are the grave diggers of capitalism. That idea seems like kind of almost um charming at this point like outdated or something like people don't really believe that anymore we're the only ones who still believe it <laughs> <laughs> i do yeah i believe it um well okay what about the third kind of big big idea debate that really what we need to do is create new types of unions or if you want to say industrial unionism well what do you think about this i mean i i actually want to hear you say more about where you see this because i I don't feel like I see a lot of coloring outside the lines. So like, give me examples, explain what you mean. <laughs> well, I think that's the problem is that I don't know that there's a lot of examples outside of some small potatoes things here and there, which that's not a knock. I think it's important to have small experimentation. But it seems to me that, you know, if you look at the early 20th century, labor unions kind of came in different types. There was like more militancy. There was more aggressive like unionism. There was industrial unionism. Um, and because of that, even like conservative craft unions had to had to like have something to give to workers. You know, they had to like actually win good contracts or settlements from bosses to usher in the wave of membership to keep them alive. I don't see that outside threat today. I think like maybe you can make an argument that Amazonians United was an attempt at this. I think like the modern day iteration of the IWW still tries to hold on. To that spirit, but I, I genuinely think like it's kind of been a path that's been abandoned. Um, it's riddled with landmines, takes a lot of risk. I think there's also like I was talking about with workers that just believe they need a contract for something to be legitimate. I think there's just so much burden of proof, like burden of concept that prevents this from really gaining traction. But, you know, once upon a time, people like Foster would call this like dual unionism, like pejorative term for like anything that's outside of the existing mainstream labor movement. 
And I think that if you look through labor history, at least in this country, when the labor movement was strongest and when it was actually like rocking on all cylinders was when there was like total unionism going on, when there was actually something outside the existing halls of labor that uh, created a competitive threat to the labor officialdom. And I don't see how organizing the unorganized rank and file strategy, even in their best manifestations, could really revive the organized labor without there being this kind of new emergent wave of unionism, something that doesn't rely exclusively on contracts and labor law as, you know, forms of power. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that that's an idea that's been, I mean, maybe it's always been there, but it's been emerging at at least since, let's say, worker centers, which, you know, I've heard someone describe as coming out of farm worker organizing, which has the ring of truth to it because of their being excluded from the labor relations framework, labor relations act. And so, yeah, there's alternative forms of unionism. And yet, I mean, I feel like you and I could talk about this all day. There are ways in which the center of gravity of the existing legal relations, labor relations system pulls so hard that it derails these things. I mean, one form that you have right now that is not covering that far outside the lines is independent unionism. And I think this happened at like Trader Joe's, or that was kind of the debate and the organizing at Trader Joe's. Um, some of the campaigns that have come out of EWOC, the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, Amazon Labor Union is an example. And I feel like this almost is derivative from the rank and file strategy, where the idea is let's not get tied up in all that terrible union bureaucracy and and you know stolid ways of doing things, and let's form our own independent union, and we'll be autonomous, and we can do whatever we want. And we all, I mean, we don't all. I think that you would argue, and I would argue that there are definitely pitfalls and limitations to that because you have, I mean. It takes certain resources to fight that kind of fight. So you need to pay lawyers. Amazon immediately challenged the status of their union on a legal level. Uh, you need to, you know, perhaps pay staff, like, you know, which they then have done. And they've just done it by fundraising, which I think also is a reason why Chris Malls is always on a plane and, at, you know, visiting another city, because that's gen- like realistically, genuinely the engine that keeps ALU running is that kind of junket fundraising. And so, but with an independent union, like, are you really doing something fundamentally different if you're just seeking recognition as an independent union and trying to bargain a contract? Not really. And now you're trying to do it without any resources. So some forms of alternatives are not that interesting. Then there's the whole experiment with worker centers, which I feel like you want to respond to something in there. So I'm going to shut up for a second. Um, I'm curious what you have to say about worker centers. I, I do think another example, just to kind of throw one into the mix, that could have gone in this direction, but ultimately didn't, was like the early ideas of the fight for 15. Like this was a notion of organizing across employers as an industry block. The problem was, though, it was never seen as being viable through worker power itself. It was seen as like a legislative campaign. But like that doesn't, like the fight for 15 could have been so interesting um, and actually something really kind of different if it didn't see its like program is primarily one of changing laws. Um, and and now they call it the fight for 15 and a union as like an afterthought. Right. But I remember, I remember the beginning and it was not, that was not part of the vernacular in the beginning. But yeah, I, I'm curious what you have to say about worker centers. Well, yeah. And the fight for 15 too, because it 
it's been a while since I've looked at this, so I could be getting this wrong, but my recollection is that as it evolved, um, I mean, it was always using workers in a little bit of a stunting way um, and was a legislative campaign. But it, it, as it evolved into uh, just like clearly a legislative campaign, it I mean, you don't need the bottom kind of drops out. Like, what do you need workers for? You know, you don't even really need them for the photo ops necessarily if you can just appeal directly to the legislators that you're trying to influence, let's say. And yeah, with worker centers, I think some of the problems are the same, which is that it seems to me in their evolution over the last 30 years that their their true colors have sort of emerged, which is that what they are is a fundraising cycle. And so like, I mean, some may have started and some may even continue to be bolder experiments in shop floor worker power, but for the most part, they are financed or funded through foundation funding and perhaps through individual donors. And the way to capture foundation funding and individual donors is to, you know, deliver the appearance of results that those people want to see or would be comfortable with, which which has um, tamed campaigns and made them less aggressive. And that's where you see the evolution from like saying this boss is an evil tyrant who steals from his workers to like these poor downtrodden immigrant workers, you know, need your help or something. And I'm sure there are people who would take issue with that and disagree with that and say, no, it's not like that. But again, I think funding model is very determinative of how organization runs and, you know, a lot of how its activity gets directed, which for the most part is just like stuff outside of direct bargaining with the employer in the first place. Yeah, it really is just kind of captured and right. doesn't seem like there's any way of breaking out of that. The other the other reasons I think a lot about like industrial unionism today, is because the more I've gotten deeper and deeper into the labor movement, the more I realize that like everything is this like weird kind of bastardized, like craft union hybrid, like amalgamated union mashup that exists today. And it doesn't really breed any kind of worker wide solidarity. Like it's really difficult to like actually build genuine solidarity when you're trying to like mash up, like, I don't know, maybe this isn't a great example, but like auto unions with grad unions, like I hope that the basis of solidarity can be forged there, but it's really difficult when you're building outside of when you're just like mashing up distinct industries together and hoping that your membership, you know, finds common struggle and common bonds uh, to fight for. I noticed it the most when I was in higher ed organizing, because I was on a campus where every single sector of workers was organized, except for the undergrad workers, which apparently is even starting to change. So the faculty were organized, the classified staff were organized, the grad student workers were organized. All of them were organized in the same, well, except for the classified workers, they were all organized by the same parent union, but distinct bargaining units. And to me, that's just like fucking bonkers. Like why, like literally the same parent union, the same state federation, per caps go into the same organization on the same campus. And these sectors of workers were operating in silos. Um, and that's just, like how how can you really build power when you're segmenting the workforce like that? And I've noticed that outside of higher ed, it's it's effectively the same across the board. Hospital units are like subject to a lot of really restrictive laws. It kind of requires them to have these like mini craft unions within a hospital. 
but that's what coloring in the lines gets you. It's just like this incredibly stratified uh, workplace with distinct unions that don't collaborate at all with each other. The, and that's the the thing is that like I think that you're right that the all of these things have class struggle written all over them. The fact that workers are divided into different bargaining units based on their particular job classification, um, the the fact that they then have different contracts, the fact that maybe then those contracts don't expire at the same time. So like all these divisions of alleged, you know, interests and crafts, and yet at the same time, or or you know, amalgamated unions, amalgamated locals, and yet at the same time, I feel as though the solution is not merely the reversal of those things. Like that those are so there's a lot of like one neat tricks in the labor movement. And uh one of the one neat tricks is uh, if only we could get contracts to expire on the same date. And again, there's obvious reasons why people would want that because it would allow more workers to strike at the same time. But I go back to what I was saying several minutes ago about how the once in a while all out strike is a really difficult blunt weapon. I mean, it's it's difficult for the workers who wield it as well as for the employers. and. It, it gives the employer years and years to prepare for it and to neuter some of its effects. And like sometimes there's even legislation in place that says that if you're a public sector worker, you can't strike at all. Or if you're a healthcare worker, you can't strike at all. And those things are impediments. Although, again, I'm not sure that if you just magic wanted away that legislation that you would necessarily have the kind of striking, fighting labor movement that you would want. So it's funny because it, it, same thing with like the rank and file strategy. Like we agree on some of the problems, but what we disagree on is what the cures are or the solutions are. And the only cure to me for anything is worker power. And the only way to cultivate worker power is to like engage it as a practice on the shop floor on a day to day basis. And, you know, that can be done through exposure to other workers doing it. That can be done through education. Again, love labor notes training. Yeah. I think Joe Burns's book, Class Struggle Unionism, kind of points to this same conclusion. I think he like almost doesn't want to like state his thesis explicitly. Like that his conclusion is we've got to just do away with these existing bureaucratic unions. But it's pretty much baked into the whole argument. He says it, I, I think his code word is like constantly saying we need to build unions that are capable and willing of violating labor law. To build power, him saying that to me sounds like he's saying we need to sweep away all this shit and build some new militant unionism. But his other point throughout that book and his other books is, you know, these militant unions that we like harken back to as like high watermarks of the labor movement took decades and decades to build. Like it took like waves and waves of organizing, and they weren't like immediate uh, explosions. It kind of looked like that on the surface, but it was after like so much of the infrastructure had been built. So that's something that I guess I, I agree with you as I just try to think about the patient long build that it'll require to organize workers, to build worker power, and to just do it methodically in the right way with the hope that eventually it creates like an ecosystem of powerful unions that changes the landscape. Who knows how long that'll take? Yeah, I mean, that's I, I'm a little bit obsessed with the topics of growth and stability. And I've been having like an ongoing 
banter conversation thread with some friends of mine about stability for about a year now, where the argument usually goes that without the legal framework that we have and without things like contracts, you don't get union stability. And there may be sometimes interesting experiments with other kinds of, of unionism, but they don't have the same stability. And I think that's a huge, interesting topic to debate and to throw a couple of counterpoints out to that. I mean, we started by talking about the precipitous decline of the labor movement with all of those coloring inside the lines, alleged you know, forms of recognition and protection and legality and everything else like that. And yeah, like my favorite example, which I write about all the time of a color outside the lines union is Stardust Family United, which is at the Stardust Diner in Times Square. And that's an experiment at this point that's been going on for seven years and without any of the trappings of uh, stability that we would normally want or recognize. So there's no there's no security clause. There's no contract at all. There's no recognition at all. There's no dues check off. There's no paid staff. There's a constant rotation of elected union officers and rota- uh, of of you know who's chairing the meeting and and whatnot. And so there's no stable like elected structure. And yet it is extraordinarily vibrant and militant because at this point the practices and the culture are so deeply ingrained of when you have a problem, you get together, you talk about it, you formulate a demand and you formulate a course of action in order to win on that demand. And it's not just stable in and of itself, but it it spreads because like other people find out about this, other workers and they reach out and they ask for help and guidance and that help and guidance is given. And the counter argument is, is of course, like you're talking about 100 people, 200 people. This is an absolute drop in the bucket of the labor movement. We need hundreds of thousands. We need millions of members. All of that true. But again, it's not as though uh, regular unions have found the secret to, to the success either because they keep shedding members. Yeah, there's a there's a percolating example. It's like. I just realized I used a pun accidentally in Philadelphia in the union I work for with like coffee shop organizing that's been taken off. It's not enough. It's like, again, it's like small scale, but I've been really happy to see this experiment kind of play out. And the main novelty of it is that from day one, we said, we're not going to just focus on a single employer. Like this is going to be a local that organizes as a local. So every time there's like a new shop in the city that wants to be a part of the union, and the specific local that's organizing these types of workers, the local itself, like the worker leaders from each shop, like get together and form the organizing committee and help them build it and grow it. And even like teach them how to negotiate a contract. We also have one contract that doesn't have a no strike clause, which I think is pretty awesome. Um, You know, if you're going to go that path, at least be interesting about it. Absolutely. And my favorite little moment was at a negotiating table once um, after that first contract had been settled different employer we're bargaining as a local too which i think is at least trying to be interesting trying to change the the landscape a little bit when we put down not only do they not have a no strike clause in their contract they actually have a strike process clause that says we have the right to strike under these conditions 
So it's like, you can't even read a no strike clause into it, which is typically how an arbitrator would. Um, when we put that down at the table against this different player, they were like totally outraged and flabbergasted. And they said, to my knowledge, there's only one union contract in all of Philadelphia that ha doesn't have a no strike clause. And we got to say, yeah, it's fucking us. Like we're that union. So that's amazing. This is our proposal. So anyway, again, small examples, but I don't, I don't think that just because something is a small example today that that discredits it automatically, that that doesn't mean that it has the potential to be something that really spreads. Yeah. I mean, nothing succeeds like success, right? And what I think what we're all grappling for, or at least you and I, is a way for the working class to become a subject for itself and <laughs> <laughs> like basically working rather than in itself. Yeah. <laughs> working people need to know how to figure out how to solve their problems at work. And solving their problems at work is a matter of strength in numbers. It's as simple as that. I mean, what's bonkers to me is how remote that idea is from a lot of basic union practice. Like most the the the, the operating sort of definition within most unions even this is not expressly articulated, seems to be, you know, the union is a service that you pay money to and get get somebody in exchange who will talk to your employer on your behalf, which is a comforting thought, you know, because every boss is a bully in some regard. And instead, it has to go back to the idea that a union is strength in numbers. And I mean, I, I love your example. And I want to, it made me think of this other thing that I found out about, which is that I was at this conference learning about bargaining or arbitration or something. And there was a guy there, he was in the trades, I forget which one, but they had a contract in which their third or fourth step was strike. They had So it was written into their contract as well. And they were, the workers were trying to uh, bargain that out and get arbitration instead, because they felt like, because they couldn't threaten the employer with arbitration, the employer didn't concede to, you know, they, they just, they, they couldn't make any ground on grievances. Um, and at the same time as that is happening, there's that other example of a UE contract, I forget what the plant is, where they used to have striking within their grievance process, and they got rid of it in favor of arbitration. And now they want it back because the employer doesn't give them anything. And it's like, the grass is greener, but but I would, what I, think is common to both of these examples it's like use it or lose it right like use worker power or don't have any <laughs> well i think that's a good way to end this and just by saying yeah our goal is to just be like the better marxist than everybody else <laughs> we are the true as any good totally not a party conversation ends we are the true marxists <laughs> <laughs> and the true party people all the working people listening to this just like immediately soured on the entire episode yeah, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, the guest has been Marion Garneau, editor-in-chief of Organizing Work, frequent guest on Labor Wave Radio. Thanks for getting us out of a hiatus. Thank a you. Very long hiatus. And I'm and it was a great conversation to come back to to get the show back on the air. You guys are great. You got to do more stuff. I love it.